You're listening to the True Life Church Podcast. Sermons are recorded at our Sunday gatherings from Melbourne, Florida. True Life Church guides people to take the next steps in their relationship with Jesus Christ, to grow, belong, and serve. We hope this audio message encourages you to take your own next steps in faith. If you'd like to know more about our church or attend one of our gatherings, find us online at www.truelifemelbourne.com. Today's message comes from one of our elders, Brad Decatur. Welcome uh, today to True Life. If today is your first time here, I've been told I need to keep this closer. If today is your first time here, welcome. We're glad to have you. My name is uh, Brad Decatur. I'm one of the elders here, and we have been going through uh, the book of Acts. And I wanted to give just a little uh, intro to Acts as we continue today, uh, in that the book of Acts is really a transitional book. And when I think of that, when I think of transitions, I don't know if, I don't know how widely they use they are anymore, but transitional lenses. Uh, right, I, I am taken back to when I, when I was preparing for this, uh, thinking back in my mind, I immediately, we have these things from when we're children that we remember, and I remember when these were first coming out, my father had a pair, uh, and they were weird, um, just as they would move from clear lenses to sunglasses, right, some kind of magic was happening there as you'd step outside, who knows how it exactly worked, but it was a transition from one to the next, and the book of Acts is really a transition from one way to another way, another way of viewing things as that is going right. And so I wanted to describe that, that movement in Scripture of uh, just in the book of Acts, right? We see a movement from the old covenant, the way that God was dealing with the Israelites and dealing with the people uh, here on earth. We see this movement to the new covenant. We see a formation of the church, We see the inclusion of God working with the Jews and moving into working with the uh, Gentiles, being grafted in and moved into the the life of the church there. And we have the movement of the Holy Spirit. This is where we see predominantly those works and signs and wonders from the Holy Spirit. And I wanted, this is why I wanted to address it. We're going to get into it a little bit today. But because the book of Acts is a transitional book, we need to look at it more in a descriptive way rather than a prescriptive way. All right, so prescriptive would be uh, telling us exactly how to do things rather than seeing the narrative. And Luke wrote this, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, right? This is what the apostles were doing in this time after Christ. He told them to wait. And after Christ, as he made this movement and the, the growth of the church, the expanse of the gospel and the Acts, or the, and the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to see this. So what we see is more of a descriptive method. We're going to get right into this, by the way. We're, going to, we're seeing more of a descriptive method here, like in, uh, rather than prescriptive. Chapter 5 talks about signs and wonders being done in the streets, yet we know that now as, as Christians we are called to fulfill the Great Commission, right? And in books such as Timothy and Titus, we're called to proclaim the gospel of Christ, not, necessar- not necessarily that everyone is prescribed to do these signs and wonders that we see here. This is a description of things that are happening. We also see in Acts 19, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, where Paul's handkerchief is used, right, in the blessing and healing process. We are not about to start a handkerchief blessing ceremony by any means. This is a descriptive method of God working through the power of the Holy Spirit to to expand the gospel into all the world. 
But again, we come back to these element. We're going to touch on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to make his presence known here. But I want you to know that as, as now, as Christians now, as you have accepted Christ into your heart, as you have believed in him and you followed the gospel, you have believed in that, Ephesians 1 tells us that you have the Holy Spirit now. So I want to get that out of the way because this isn't the talk today about the Holy Spirit, um, but it does play a part, and I'm not going to skip over these sections. I want to address it. But in Ephesians 1, you don't have to turn there, but if you want, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, it reads, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay, I want to be clear about that now. But I would like you to turn to uh, the book of Acts. If you get your Bibles out, and we're going to turn to the beginning, the book of Acts. As you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Lord God, we pray for your blessing today, that through your word you would speak into our hearts and into our minds, um, that we would rely on you, that the power of your word I would be manifested in our life today. Lord, please just guide me as I speak. Let these be your words and not mine. I'll let you do the work in the hearts of those that are here. In your name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to still do a little bit of a summary here. We are going to eventually get to Acts chapter 8. That's where our main section is going to be. What I wanted to kind of set up, set this up a little bit. Again, back into descriptive and prescriptive methods here. Acts 1 says in the first book, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to go down to uh, chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying there with them, uh, he ordered them, this is Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you learned from me, for John the Baptist uh, baptized, I'm sorry, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked the Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel, uh, to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The apostles were expecting this great sign, this great wonder, this movement where the Holy Spirit did not use to indwell people. The Holy Spirit would be uh, laid upon or given or granted power uh, for a time uh, as that would act. But now we're going to start to see the Holy Spirit indwelling believers. So this is that movement, that transition. This is not a prescriptive time to say that every, everyone that believes now is going to have these special powers from the Holy Spirit, but we see that God has granted those to the apostles in this moment. And I want you to, we're going to move to Acts 2. Just another page over. Acts 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, this is the Holy Spirit coming, right? They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were all sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there was a dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together and they were be bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What a miraculous event. 
Wouldn't that be a crazy thing to be a part of when you were in a spot where you are not hearing your own language, but everyone all of a sudden is hearing this proclamation, and the point here is not the languages. The point is the proclamation of the gospel, right? They are proclaiming Christ, and the power is being evident in that others are able to hear. This is the expanse. This is the divine movement of God to advance the gospel in the beginning. This is not saying we are all to do this, right? This is where we get into the descriptive, prescriptive method of that. But yet the expanse is where we lead to, the expanse of the gospel. This leads us to our text. Let's go ahead and move to chapter 8, if you will. I'm going to plug right along as I normally do. Uh, try to keep up. I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my... I'm going to do my best to, uh, to make this just clear and concise. And I, tr- I tried to keep it under two hours, but we'll go from here. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please padlock the doors, yes, man. Um, where we left off, uh, last week we left off uh, with the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7. And as that moved into the beginning of chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was persecuting the church. And if you remember back to chapter 1, we see that Christ had uh, d- declared and set up for the apostles to stay in Jerusalem, but yet it was going to be expanding. The gospel was going to be expanding. Who would have thought, probably they did maybe at that time, that it was going to be because of persecution. They persecuted Christ. They were going to be persecuted. And so this persecution began here, this struggle, right? Paul or Saul at that time, Right? We'll get to his conversion later. That's another great, fantastic story um, of, of Saul interacting with God, coming in contact with the Christ. But yet the apostles stayed, and many of the others were scattered. It's interesting to look at how persecution really is often the primary method of our own growth, right? If we think... If we think about that, it's the primary method for our growth. If we think of, Travis, I saw um, today, he's back. We've heard, if you've been a part of our, um, usually our times after a service or been a part of any of our mission stuff, Travis just got back. I haven't gotten a chance to talk with him at all. But our missionary that we support has, um, has some fantastic stories of the expanse of the gospel where he's at. And I think much much of that has to do with the persecution that they endure. They are literally running for their lives. And here we see that as well. In James chapter 1, it says that the testing of our faith brings about a steadfastness, right? A reliance on God. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants to go through that. But we have found that that is true in our lives, have we not? Yeah? Yes, no? If you haven't, it's hard to pray and ask for persecution in your life, but I pray that struggle comes to you where you rely on God, where we are forced to turn back to God and rely on him for the movements in our life. And that persecution, that struggle, that burden comes in a lot of different ways. We in America don't see exactly the persecution that other people see across the world, especially for our missionaries. 
but we do feel these burdens and these struggles. Well, these apostles, these disciples, these followers of Jesus saw an exact persecution of their life being imprisoned and being moved. We have some similar things that we could look at maybe as a nation. We look at 9-11. Maybe we look at COVID in recent history of where these burdens and these struggles and what seems like just a crazy battle of truth and justice, right, or just life, really, as we battle and struggle against a disease that in the beginning we didn't exactly know what was happening and people were dying that maybe shouldn't have or we didn't think were going to, and people that were surviving that we thought were not going to. What a mysterious time to live in. But yet it drew many people closer to God or at least started seeking. It also tipped some people on the fence the other direction where they chose to flee and leave but it made a choice. It required, it required a choice in your life to move from that. But this conviction from the gospel in their lives of these believers led to the expanse of the church, as we see as the, in the text, from Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. We're going to pick up in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they had heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This Philip is not the apostle Philip, but this is deacon Philip we read about in chapter 6. He was one of seven men that was set and established to be one of the distributors of food, right? To those that were in need, that were being neglected, he was set up to be that deacon. But the gospel affected his life in such a way that he was now required to move from a status of deacon or missions to the life of an evangelist. I wonder if the weight of the gospel on your life has caused you to move from your position to a position of evangelist, to share your faith. In a 2016 article from Desiring God, there were four reasons listed or that they found why people do not share their faith. Number one reason was a lack of gospel knowledge. Hopefully, you are here because you have heard that, you've accepted that gospel knowledge, and hopefully here is a, t as a place where you have received the, the, the message of the gospel and heard it many, many times over. But can you articulate that to someone else? Do you feel confident enough to share what the gospel is to someone else in their lives to make a difference? Philip didn't have the New Testament. He was living it. What he had was the Old Testament, the promises of God, the proclamation of Christ, the testimony of the apostles and his experiences living amongst them, and the pressures and the persecution that were coming as a result of that. And he relied on that gospel to be able to share with others. We struggle because we don't know so I challenge you, know, be in the know, <laughs> find out, do the research, look it up. Find out what it is that you believe. I can only go back to my childhood again, where G.I. Joe had it right, knowing is half the battle. <laughs> and it's so true. If we are not confident in what it is that we know, we are not confident enough to share it. So I challenge you to know. A lack of gospel knowledge. Another one is apathy. A reason why we don't share our faith is apathy. We just don't care about lost people. Philip and the rest of the apostles had to. Believe, had to. It was evident that they did. 
They cared about others. Otherwise, they would have kept it to themselves. 1 John 3, 17 through 18 warns us against closing our hearts to others. Could you imagine if the apostles or Philip did not share the gospel of Christ? Where would we be? Would we even be here today if they did not expand that? Where will others be today if you do not? A third reason is fear. What will people think of me? What will people think of my family? What will people at my job think? Are they going to make fun of me? People, we fear what's going to happen. And obviously, we could look at the story and go that Philip had everything to be afraid of, running for his life. But you know what fear often does? Fear focuses and narrows our mind. It narrows our focus on what's important. What was important to Philip? Sharing the gospel, even at the cost of his life. I wonder what's important to you. If we're not sharing our faith, that might seem to identify what is more important. Is it yourself? Is it others? Deuteronomy 10, 12 says, fear the Lord and follow his ways. A fourth reason they listed for not sharing our faith is lack of compassion. We've lost sight of the suffering of others. People living without hope. I don't know when you've accepted Christ in your life. If it was later on as an adult, I think you might be able to look back on that. I look as a child and I go, I mean, the worst sins I ever did, I, was, I accepted Christ into my life and believed in him when I was eight years old. My worst sins came after, right? But as an adult, can you look back and remember the struggle, the hopelessness before Christ? And do we remember that? And do we identify that with others? I think we live in no greater time uh, that I can... Uh, than now to be able to identify and see that. I think every generation might say that. But honestly, these hot button topics that are out here, that are out there from LGBT issues, race issues, abortion issues, identity crisis issues, these are hurting people. We know the truth, regardless of how it plays out. We know the truth, and these are hurting people. Do we care about them? Absolutely stand your ground. I'm not saying don't. But how we share and how we articulate that does show our compassion and our heart for those that are going through it, right? Try to wrap your mind around this part of it. Romans 9, 3, Paul declares that he would rather be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. Wow. I don't know if I could say that. I was sharing that with my wife the other day. To cut myself off from the body of Christ so that you or others could have that. Could I say that? I don't know if I can. But yet this expanse, right? These, these reasons for not sharing your faith, Philip did not exemplify any of these. He went on and he did that. And the gospel expanded because of these believers. And there was much joy, it says, verse 8, so that created much joy in the city. Isaiah 61 says that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Romans 1.16 says, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power. There's power in the proclamation, the advance of the gospel. To proclaim Christ is to proclaim the gospel. 
We're going to move on to verse number nine. We're going to read this longer section here and kind of come back to it. This is about Simon the Magician. And it's interestingly enough, the title of this section, if you have titles in your Bible, it says Simon the Magician Believes. Uh, we're going to see that not exactly to be the way it looks. But read with me if you will. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Saying that he himself was somebody great. That all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We have faithful Philip continuing to share the gospel. And we're going to get a little bit more details on how that plays out. Let's keep reading. Verse 14 it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit had, uh, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May the silver perish with you, because, your thought, or because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me that the Lord, uh, to the Lord that nothing of what you had said may come true, or may come upon me. I'm sorry. We see a little bit more about what's happening in the proclamation of the gospel, many people are coming. But yet here we have a record of what is possibly the first recorded false convert, Simon the magician. But he did so many of the right things. How can we say that? Let's take a look at it. We are going to look at four elements of a counterfeit faith. A counterfeit faith is a false faith. It's not a genuine saving faith. We're going to see the elements of that. These counterfeit faith is marked by four things. It is man-centered. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he had preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Philip came preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came with the right message. Yes, it was filled and it had signs and wonders and healings were happening, but the proclamation was Jesus' name. All of that was done in the name of Jesus. Second Corinthians, Paul even writes about his time, says, We proclaim that it is not ourselves, but it is Jesus that is Lord. But for Simon, it was his focus. The focus was on him. He possessed the power. He was attractional. We're going to look back 
at verse 9, it says that there was a man, Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people in Samaria and said that he himself was somebody great. He was retaining the focus on all of this, and we see as that plays out. He was preaching a gospel, all right, but it was a gospel of himself. He declared that he was the one that was important. And even this line in verse 10, uh, yes, 10, this, the, the people even thought that this man was a, um, is the power of God, the power of the gods that they believed that was, was embodied in this man. Now, however you want to look, and we could go into what the magic was and how, how that played, whether it was legit or whether it was just trickery or whether it was part of, you know, wherever that falls, the, the central focus for Simon was himself that he maintained that position. We see that playing out in our culture today as we talk about my rights, my truth, my identity. Abortion is about my rights. LGBT is about my position, my truth. But yet we see it in the church as well. We see it when we come together and we sing songs that are about me, how I can be better, how God can work in me, how great I am, how much I seek after God, how much, how much glory I should get, what God should be doing in my life, and we seek those things. Rather than seeking to make our time together as a body of Christ and then moving our lives around that, we often find that we adjust our time together around whatever else we're doing in our lives, right? Time coming together as a body. People begin switching churches, changing what they're doing because the worship doesn't make them feel connected to God. It wasn't good enough. As if gathering together as the body of Christ is about you. <laughs> when it should be about praising God and we need to leave you, me, at the doorstep. We need to learn to become more like him, less of me, more of him. But we see in verse 19, this is played out. It's confusing when you look at this in general. You kind of read through and you go, well, he did the right things. It even says he believed. It says he was baptized. Can you be baptized, church? And still not be a believer? You can. You can follow the motions. That's why we stress here that baptism is not a salvation moment, but this is an obedience moment. Here in verse 19, though, he sees this happening, this work of the Holy Spirit, this evidence, and he says, Give me this power also, so that on anyone I lay my hands. Simon's focus was on himself. A counterfeit faith is also marked by a reliance on self for everything else. Not just a focus, but a reliance on self. Simon had the power, as we read before, and all the tension was given to him, and he desired that. He desired for people to listen to him, to be in a position of power, uh, to lord over people. Philip pointed people to Christ for their salvation. Not to him, not to the signs that were being done, but to Christ. Verse 19 again. Simon wants control of the Holy Spirit. We just read it. Today, our culture, in our culture, government wants control of everything, right? 
Individuals want control of everything. If I can't fix it, a surgeon will. If I can't fix it, a new law is going to make you do this for me. If I can't force everyone else to be nice to me or call me the right thing, then how am I going to achieve whatever it is that I'm seeking, right? This, the reliance on self. I need to get this stuff to happen. But yet the church sees the same thing in their false preachers, faith pastors, new apostolic reformation, these movements, these preachers, these pastors that come in calling themselves apostles, they are coming right into the book of Acts as a prescriptive thing saying, look, I am the new apostle. I am the new voice mechanism of God. He spoke to me. It's not in here anymore, but listen to me. Listen to the things that I say to do. So reliance on self in our church. And it needs to stop. A third thing is that um, marks a, a false convert or a, a false faith, a counterfeit faith, is false power. The apostles, uh, we'll read in chapter 14, and when the apostles at Jerusalem um, heard that, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw this, right, he tried to give them money. The apostles came in with a power as evident of uh, what Jesus has said. He was going to come in. You're going to have power. You're going to have this evidence to follow the proclamation in the expanse of the gospel. And the apostles came in to show this, to prove this, to demonstrate this. And Simon said, I want it. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I can say this, right, we have the passage basically says, where am I at here? Um, Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money. If just laying on of hands and nothing happened, he wouldn't have offered money for that. That's not the show, right? But what we have is the demonstration of this that we read in the beginning, Acts 2, right? They're speaking in tongues. For the proclamation of the gospel, the the focus is not the tongues, but that the proclamation of the gospel is going out. In chapter 5, the shadow of Peter casts over people, and people are being healed because of the shadow, because of the proclamation during the shadow over, over those people's lives. He was proclaiming the gospel, and these things were evident. This is the transitional movement through the book of Acts that I was talking about before. Chapter 10, we haven't got there yet, but additionally, speaking in tongues, the Gentiles were now going to be getting the Holy Spirit in their lives, and that same miraculous event of speaking in tongues was going to happen there. We'll read about it in a couple of weeks. This is happening to show and demonstrate the power of God during the proclamation and the pointing to Jesus Christ. Right? And in 19, we already talked about the handkerchief thing. It's weird, but it's in there. This is something grand, right? This is a grand event that the apostles were looking forward to. They were looking from what Jesus had promised that they would have this sign and show to, to accompany them in the movement and the expanse of the gospel, which was something new. It was transitioning. It was a little bit different than what everybody thought. And so this is what they were seeing. Simon wanted to yield that power, but he was unfamiliar with it. He was familiar with whatever this magic, trickery, sorcery, deception that he was doing. This is what he wanted to do, and he wanted to continue to be the amazing thing, the authoritative power. He wanted to wield that power of the Holy Spirit. 
2 Thessalonians 2.9 warns us of the coming power of Satan with false signs and wonders. 1 John 4.1 tells us to test the spirits. In 2 Corinthians 11.13-15 uh, it says this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So there is no surprise that the servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We continue to see this as we talked about with the new faith, uh, reformation, uh, word of faith movements, and the pastors and stuff that are a part, of, a part of that. We also see that in our culture in tarot cards, uh, psychics, horoscopes, Enneagram, right? We see these things that distort the power of God. And in the church, these prosperity gospel or prosperity preachers just want you to send money to reap that harvest, sow a seed to get the power of God in your life. But friends, the power of God is the work of Christ over your sin, not the increase in your bank account or their bank account. It's a distorted view. It's a false power that they're seeking after. Simon's request in 19, verse 19 he wants to purchase this. He wants to purchase this power. But Peter said to him, well, I'll move on. He wants to purchase this power. He wants it as a result, not, not as a result of his own faith in God, but yet he wanted to buy it. But yet scripture talks about it being a free gift. Romans 6.23 says a free gift. Romans 5.15 talks about it being a free gift. There are many other passages that talk about that as well. Um, but Ephesians 1.14 says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. We're talking about a sincere faith, right? Versus a counterfeit faith. And believed, you received the promised Holy Spirit as a seal of your inheritance. He was trying to go about it a completely wrong way. Fourth mark of a counterfeit faith is truth concealed. Philip was scattered with the saints to share the Christ with everyone that he met. That was his mission, and he was on mission, and he was doing it. We saw that he was doing that in the beginning here, verses 11, as he was doing amazing things, uh, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, and people were being baptized. Philip was being faithful to that. Lose my notes here. Romans 5, 1 through 11 really is a great section, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Jumping to verse 11, it says, More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This truth that is proclaimed by Philip is rejoiced upon. A change in their life. If you've had this change in your life, you can identify with it. If you have not, you can't. You can't identify with the joys of the uh, rejoice with the the freedom from our sin unless you've experienced that. And this was an experience that 
he had and he had knowledge in his faith that it compelled him to share his faith with everyone. Not so for Simon. He was clear on his intention. He wanted to be the one with the power. He wanted to go back to his old ways of being the one that people look to, being the one that people are amazed by, being the one that people go to and make um, accolades to and, and commend and look after and, and look to and direct others to. He wanted to be in charge and be in power. He wanted to deceive other people, withhold the truth that the gospel is there and that the free gift of the Holy Spirit is available. No, he wanted to pay for it and he wanted to own it. And he wanted to hide that and conceal that from others. Our culture today, I'm not, I, can't, I can't even begin to get into a list of how our culture does this today. How society has fought to restrict the truth of the Bible. But the church has expanded this as well. And now the truth of the gospel is being hidden by a gospel of acceptance and tolerance of sin. We don't address it. We don't call it out. We don't talk about it. We hide it. We run from it. We adjust, we adjust our decorations. We adjust, uh, adjust our, our statements of faith so that we can include everyone. We want to include everyone, right? That's a, that's a different part of the point, but, but we're changing the truth of Scripture and concealing what's actually happening. We need forgiveness of our sins. We lower our expectations. In verse 19 through 20 again, he says, Simon says, I want this power. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent. Peter is addressing Simon here. And he responds out of outrage. I read that kind of mellow. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. One commentator has, has indicated that this is actually a softening of what the intention of the Greek is. Where it literally means to hell with you and your money. Nothing the Lord has is for sale. Romans 6.23, again, Romans 5.15, says this is a gift of God for eternal life. This is a gift for our belief. This is not something that you can buy. You are not a believer, Peter says to him. You are not a believer. You have insulted God and you distorted the message of the gospel. You have no business here. Doesn't sound very nice now, does it? He confronts him. I think what's interesting is we have had a Sunday night Bible study. We've been going through the fruits of the Spirit. A couple of weeks ago, we went through gentleness, one of the fruits of the Spirit. And it's interesting about what we kind of concluded about gentleness and what that looks like as a believer. I don't know if I could you call this gentle? What would you what would you call that? I want to put it in perspective. See, we're, we call uh, what we might consider gentle, if I define this for you, might be restrained power. If we remember back a couple of chapters, Peter had an encounter with Ananias and Sapphira. What was his response to them? Dead, right? They're dead. They're both dead. 
He could have responded in an equal manner. This is restrained power. And why was this restrained? Because he was not a believer. He was offering him a point of contention here, but to the point of repentance. He was calling for repentance out of this man. I don't know if he believed it was going to happen or not, but he asked him for it. He confronted him. You are in the snare of sin. Repent, he said. Turn, and if you repent, I want to read this because it's interesting. Verse 22, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. What exactly is repentance? It's a change of our heart. It's a turnaround, right? It's a 180 degree. If possible, I'm not sure if it's going to happen with you, Simon, but this is what it's going to take. It's going to take a 180. It's going to take a turnaround on this, a moment to repent. And if you can do that, salvation awaits you. If you can't, hit the road, Jack. You have no place here. Simon's response in verse 23, I pray that this, well, verse 24, I pray that this is not your response. Simon says, you pray. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon you, may come upon me. He had no real repentance, no change of heart, no concern for the insult of God, only the desire to escape the immediate penalty, right? Not even an inkling of sorrow. Second Corinthians. Two, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 7 verses 9 and 10. As it is, Paul's writing, I rejoice over the letter that he, written, that he had written to them. Uh, I rejoice that not because you were grieved, right? These people were grieved by what he had written. Not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It would have been better that he had had an inkling of sorrow in his heart to repent and turn from his ways, but he did not. Verse 25. Now, when they, had been t- uh, t- when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they continued to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles continued back on their way back to Jerusalem. And all during that process, they continued to share their faith, to proclaim the gospel of Christ to those on their way back. We're going to get into a new section here, though. Um, but it's interesting to continue to notice how the expanse of the gospel is happening, moving from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and, and we're about to see as it reaches um, some of those aspects of the end of the earth, right, as it continues out. And in just a short bit, right, we see that God's faithful to his promises that this will continue in just seven, eight chapters. The advance of the gospel is moving. Chapter 8, verse 26 Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. 
and he rose and went. The miraculous, this miraculous expansion continues as we see the angel of the Lord speaking out to Philip, and Philip, as a faithful follower of God, followed right away. Fearless obedience. The, the, this road from Jerusalem to Gaza is long, and it says even in this script or in this uh, passage here that is it a desert place? He's going into the desert on a journey he's unsure of because he's been told by God to go do that, and he's faithful to follow. But along the way, we see that an Ethiopian is coming. We'll, read, we'll, we'll continue on in the passage. He rose, um, 27, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, the, the, the area of Ethiopia is gone to the north. Uh, east section of, of Africa. He's a quite a bit uh, away from where, uh, quite a big distance actually from where he was living. Uh, and, but he was seeking to worship. It's interesting to see how um, God just is working in the lives of these people to connect them. But the Ethiopian uh, was a court official of Candace. Candace was not a first name. This is more of a title like uh, Pharaoh. Uh, there, but the ruler, queen of Ethiopians, and, she, and, and he was in charge of all the treasury. He basically held the checkbook, right? <clears throat> he was an important man, a position of esteem. But God was working on his heart. We see again that God is preparing this encounter. John 6, 43 says that no one comes to me, Jesus, unless the Father draws him. And we see this divine encounter unfolding. The angel of the Lord coming to Philip, um, God working on his heart as we see he's coming to worship. He's reading scripture. Verse 28, it says, and... Um, I'm sorry, verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Uh, the eagerness of Philip here, being at, at, at the direction of God, was to run to this encounter. Do you understand what you're reading? He asked him. Listen to this in Romans 10, 13 through 15. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who, uh, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. John 16, 13 says, The Spirit will, uh, the Spirit will Holy Spirit will guide you to the truth the truth of Jesus in the word of God. Do we see this in action right now? How can I, unless, uh, the Ethiopian responds, how can I understand this, right? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. This is Isaiah 53 that we heard earlier this morning. Like a shepherd, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. They do not have the New Testament. He has a scroll of Isaiah. And yet, if you were to, if you were to pick a chapter, uh, a book that would most precisely point someone in this time period to Christ, this would be that book. This would be that chapter. Again, the the divine sovereignty of God to bring these things about. I would like you to turn with me to Isaiah 53. This passage... Jesus Christ long before he was here. I'm going to read from the beginning here, but I want you to, I, I want to, as I go through this, if you, if you didn't hear it before, if it wasn't making sense, if it wasn't clicking, I want you to recall what happened with Christ as he was here. His death, his burial, his resurrection, the story from that that happened, the gospel that was being put forward is played out years before from the prophecy of God. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that, he should look, uh, that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. Was he not despised and rejected by men, by the world, even today? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't care that he was here. Surely he he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. On that cross he was crushed, which is why upon him we have the chastisement brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. By his wounds on the cross we have the forgiveness of sins, the covering of our sins. This is a testimony to Jesus Christ's work. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have wandered from God. We have turned away, every one of us, to his own way. Man-centered, right? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our wickedness, all of our sin has been laid at the feet of Jesus. On the back of Jesus, right? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like a sheep that, there, uh, that before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Matthew 26 and others describe what had happened when he, Jesus faced his accusers and he remained silent, choosing not to defend himself. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for uh, this generation, who considered that he was cut off in the land of the living? He was killed. 
stricken for our transgressions of the or stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death Jesus in Matthew 27 um, is died and he's buried on this earth amongst our wickedness but yet we have the account of the rich man coming to take his body from the cross and bury him in his own tomb although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth Jesus was sinless which is the only reason he can die in our place Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Can we even fathom that beginning of time it was God's plan to do this exact thing? God's sovereignty is at work here, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes uh, an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By, the knowledge, um, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. The death of Jesus was accounted for all who believe. Many, it was accounted for many, for all who would believe in him. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He is the only one capable of doing this. God made man coming down to be sinless, to die on the cross, to carry our burdens, to be an intercessor. The only one that can come between us and God is him to make that payment for that penalty. It's all here. Back to our text in Acts, verse 34, chapter 8, verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. What did he have to work with? He had God's holy word and this entire story to be able to share with the Ethiopian. And that's what Philip did. He shared that out of the abundance of what he had available to him and the movement of the Holy Spirit and this divine encounter, Philip shared Jesus with him. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. On a side note uh, about baptism, this is why we, this is one of the reasons why we practice immersion for baptism and not sprinkling, right? This is an identification an illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We identify with that. We show that. We illustrate that. That is why we do it that way. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. What a miraculous event to happen at the point of your conversion when a man just disappears. Scripture says that Philip was found at Azotus. That's approximately 20 miles away or so from where they were at. And as he passed along that way, he preached the gospel. He continued to preach the gospel to those that are around all the way there. But what is genuine faith? We talked about counterfeit faith. 
Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In essence, what we have is the assurance, we have confidence, we have faith in God for the future based on our faith and our trust on what he's done in the past. Despite this being unseen by us, right? Romans 1 talks about God is God has made himself known in the world. The scripture we just read identifies that he has made himself known. He had made Christ known before Christ was even known by everyone else, right? He had made it known through Isaiah. We can identify to fulfill scripture. But faith is belief in God, but that isn't enough. James 2.19 says that even the demons believe and tremble. Uh, a, a theologian, R.C. Sproul, said that to believe in the existence of God merely qualifies us to be demons. It is another thing to believe in God and to believe God and trust him for our very life and the life to come. We talked about time, how Simon had a counterfeit faith. It wasn't a saving faith, and I want to talk with you about a genuine faith. Things that mark a genuine faith are Christ-centeredness. We proclaim Jesus. Second Corinthians says we proclaim Jesus as Lord. Philip preached the good news of Jesus and only Jesus. It's also marked by a reliance on Christ as our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9.15 says that he is our mediator of the new covenant. Baptism into Christ Jesus demonstrates that genuine faith, that true belief and identification with him and what Christ has done exemplifies and connects us with God and his saving grace. We're not just along for the ride. The Ethiopian could not wait for this. He relied on God, could not wait, and had to get baptized. Look, there's a river. Look, there's a puddle. There's a something, right? Let's do this now. Let's not wait. Genuine faith is also marked by divine power. The same power that raised God from the dead, the indwelling Holy Spirit, is living inside of you as the believer. You have conviction of your faith. You've identified through baptism uh, and evangelism, and you've rejoiced, and you've had that, that peace, that, that moment to rejoice that the Scripture talked about through this divine power. God's sovereignty was on display here. Philip was yielding to the power of God and the gospel and the word that was there and the promises of God for true salvation to be found in Christ Colossians 2, 12 through 14 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working, uh, powerful working of God who raised them from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and, un and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. God's divine power is what has done that. With healing and restoration from the Holy Spirit, it brings rejoicing. And this rejoicing was exemplified and was shown by the Ethiopian eunuch here in verse 39. He, find, he found what he was looking for, praising God and searching the scriptures. 
And finally, genuine faith is marked by truth that is shared. This truth experienced by them must be shared. It must be shared with others, and Philip was faithful to do that. This message is available to all, not to be hidden, not to be marked by something different, not to be held back, uh, but yet to be shared with all. The truth of Christ, the word of God. It doesn't account for this, but it's likely the Ethiopian went back to his home, shared that, he must have, in his hometown, and became a catalyst in his own area for the expanse of the gospel. In closing here, I'll have Kristen, if you wanted to come up. We're going to we're going to take communion in just a minute. And the gospel of Christ demands a response. We can't hear it and walk away unchanged. Each of us should look at our own lives compared to Simon and see if we carry the marks of a counterfeit faith. Is the focus us, our life, or is it the life of Christ? And do you rely on him for your salvation? If, like Simon, please repent now. Turn from your sin. Recognize that the prophecies from Isaiah that were fulfilled in Christ took your penalty for sin on the cross. He can be trusted. We do not live with a blind faith. But our faith trusts God for the future because what uh, he has done in our past. We have evidence of that. We can rely on that. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have truly believed that for the first time this morning, we want to rejoice with you. There is an ocean minutes away. I will fill that tub today. Nothing can prevent you from identifying with Christ. I ask you, I plead with you, I call on you to have a genuine faith. If you're like the Ethiopian, you have a genuine faith. You've experienced that. Remember Christ in this communion. Rely on him daily for the preaching of the gospel to yourself. Recount that. Relive that. Read that. Live in the power of God by rejoicing in the truth, and the truth of scripture. Read your Bible. And if you haven't gotten baptized, do it. Be faithful to the word, publicly declare your faith, and be emboldened to share the joyous news with others. I encourage you, have a genuine faith. Evaluate yourself during this time to see where you stand. Thanks for listening to this message. 
This weekly podcast is a ministry of True Life Church. If you'd like to help keep these audio sermons available, you can support our ministry online at www.truelifemelbourne.com forward slash give. Until next time, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.